competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet on the planet with your host paul murphy and expert coach nick nanavati Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another week of the Art of War podcast. I am super duper excited because this week we have a very, very special guest near and dear to my heart. We got Jack the Snacks Harpster, currently the number one player in the world, ITC champion, LVO winner. The man is absolutely unstoppable over here. And we have him for this episode as a guest. He's also an Art of War coach, and he is going to break down his mindset as a top player. We're going to learn a little bit about the man behind the models, you know, talk about his his mindsets, how he gets better at the game, how he views the game, all that stuff. And then in part two, because of course this is part one of a two-part conversation, we are going to talk about how Jack is going to explore the new arcs of Omen Meta. Jack, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing good. You know, uh, tons of sleep, I think, is the is the answer here. Lots of coffee. <laughs> uh, yeah, we know, are, it, we're functioning like, on perfectly normal eight hours a night sleep. Excellent, excellent stuff here. As we should, as we should. It's the only healthy way to live. Uh, I mean, Nick, you should know it's not Jack the Snacks. It's Jack Snacks. It's Jack Snacks. You're the one who coined the term in the first place. Well, if you add the word the in front of it, it sounds more epic. That's a well-known fact. Well-known fact. Oh, that's true. It's true. It's, um, you know, it, it's, it sounds like a fighter now. Exactly. Jack the Snacks Harpster sounds way more menacing. Like Brandon the Assassin Baby Moreno. Anyway, moving on. Moving on, yes. Um, so everybody, if you want to catch part two of this conversation, which we're going to go over the arcs of Omen Meta and how Jack plans to break that down, uh, you can check that out on AOW40K.com. It's a five bucks a month to subscribe. You get a week access to the Unbroken podcast that Blake does. Him and Matt Morisoli, who just also finished Top 4 OVO, put on an amazing show where they cover your losses and how to get better from them. But this is the Art of War podcast. Over here, we interview winners. And Jack, my friend, you here are one of those. Yeah, somehow. I don't know. Blood Angels. And then then you just keep hitting people in combat, and eventually people stop, you know. There's nobody else to fall over. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, you, you've played, like, well, let's talk about you for a second before we get into what you played and how it all worked. How long have you been playing Warhammer? Uh, roughly like 10, 10 or 11 years, something like that. Too long, really. Rookie numbers. I'm on 19 right now. You're on 19? Aren't you only like 16? No, I, I am in fact in my mid-20s, Jack. So, Oh my god. Right. Uh, no, okay, so you've been playing 10, 11 years, and were you always competitive with that, or is that a new thing for you? Pretty, pretty quickly in, honestly. Like, uh, probably about a year in, year in, no, probably about six months in, I went to my first Nova, maybe a year in, I went to my first Nova. Wow, just right off didn't, the bat. Yeah, pretty much. And didn't, I mean, I, I like to be competitive, so that's where I was finding my fun, was trying to get better, trying to come up with new strategies, etc. Uh, I did not do amazing at Nova. I think I went like four and four. I mean, not- if anything, that kind of shows like where you were to where you are now. And I think many, many, many of our viewers can resonate with someone who breaks even or even worse at a tournament. And then for you to be able to go from that to number one player in the world, that's really what I want to try to uncover in this journey here. Yeah. Well, I was uh, I was in a very, very good club at that point. So I was in the... Uh, the, you remember the Roll to Wound days, Nick? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember the Roll to Wound days. That was back our, when we were in, living in New Jersey. That was our local club. Yeah, local club at the game store, uh, the only game in town, which is closed now, unfortunately. Uh, the only game in town, done, Target. Um, but that was our store. We'd go there every Wednesday, and we would play a couple games. And uh, that was Nick's store and where he would go. And so there were there was a crew with you that were also pretty good, you know, like, Warner, Brad, when he came by, uh, there was uh, Zach Child, uh, Cameron Panero, who's doing great things out in the Midwest, was from that store originally. For sure, way for back sure. in the day, uh, Jim Stanley. There's a, there's a bunch of people who were from the from way back in the you know yonks ago. And you know, if you play good players, you get better. That's basically how it works. So basically, you just found a competitive community right off the bat, and they fostered your ability to get better at the game and helped you with that endeavor. Yeah, well. I was thinking about taking uh, Tau allied with uh, Grey Knight. No, Grey Knight's allied with Tau to Nova because that was a thing you could do. And I just liked them and I thought it was cool. And I was like, hey, Nick, what do you think of my list? And you're like, I don't know why you're putting those together. And I'm like, cool. And I did it anyway. 
<laughs> nice. Nice. That sounds familiar. But you've yeah. had quite a competitive journey. You know, I, I've watched you grow as a player from, like you said, like 4-4 record at Nova to uh, winning records at these t- tournaments, trying to make top 16s, trying to make top 8s. I remember early in your career, you won a Nova Invitational. And somehow between that, we also got over here. And I, how did that happen? <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's, that's kind of a long story. But like two years in or whatever, I... Uh, managed to get an invite to the Nova Invitational because like they had to fill a bunch of spots. So they were like, Hey, you there boy, get in here. Um, and then I managed to win it. And then, uh, there was BFS after that, which I managed to win about a month later. And then for a long time, it was just grinding out events. Um, you know, just going to events cause I knew a lot of the people there and I was friends with a lot of the people. So it was outside of just being a chance to, you know, to compete and to play, it was also a chance to see all my friends. Because yeah. now at this point, I've got friends I can basically say all over the globe. Um, which is super I, cool. Yeah, yeah, which is super cool. But I can't see them outside of you know events, right? Uh, Adam Camilleri is coming down here at some point soon, but you know, not everybody is just willing to come over and and stay without me having to mo- travel. So I got to travel to see everybody that I want to see. Definitely. So. I guess you, you're saying the friends and, and the people you met along the way is really what kept you in the game, and then just you got a better as a byproduct of how you enjoyed it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I basically, I was basically like just a, a pretty good player for a long time, and then uh, for, for maybe like seven years, I was, I was pretty good. Like, I could beat anybody, but I probably wasn't going to win an event. And then um, COVID hit, then COVID attacked, COVID and... Attacked. COVID attacked, and I took an involuntary year off of 40K. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, As I'm sure a you, lot of players did. So I think a oh, lot of players might be able to maybe recognize that, like, hey, I took a year off 40K, and it's still achievable. You know, in just a short amount of time, you got right back to it. Yeah. You, I mean, you don't forget the muscle memory, really. Uh, you can you can see that with Alex Fennell doing so well against his competition at uh, at LVO. Yeah, that, that man has not really been playing that many competitions, and he's still got it. Um, but yeah, so I, I got back into it. I I came down to Florida, which apparently is the secret sauce, because you and the boys here were doing doing great art of war things. And so I was like, yeah, I'd like to be a part of that. So I moved down to Florida. And then that's where the Shark Tank really began. <laughs> what was your experience like moving to Florida after not playing Warhammer for a year? Um, it, it, it felt good. It felt good. Because COVID was basically like nothing was happening except work. Right? I'd go to work, I'd come home. I go to work and I come home and I go to work and I come home. Yeah, and that was it. Not not the funnest existence. No, couldn't couldn't go to the gym for a decent amount of it for obvious COVID related reasons. But so I was just not doing anything like hobby wise. So coming down to Florida was was amazing because I got to actually like start doing my hobbies again. Um, yeah, because you know, and then yeah, I got my head bounced off the floor for for a little bit. Then As I started going to events when they move in the art warehouse. Yeah, yeah, it it happens to you. It happens to you. But the the head bouncing it goes around, it comes around, Nick. I found, I found. <laughs> you know, so and then from there on out, it's just uh, back to the back to the old grind, back to going to events and having a good time and seeing everybody, and then making more friends, and then going back to events, and making more friends, and seeing your old friends, and and uh, eventually right back to where you were before. Yeah, I mean, it is kind of amazing how it all comes full circle like that. Let's transition the topic a little bit. Um, now that we've covered a bit of your backstories, how you got to be the ITC winner, let's talk about this season because you've had quite a bit of a fire season. I saw some stat where it said you played eight super major level events and played seven different factions through them. Yeah, yeah. And I think my first eight super majors, really? I didn't count it myself. <laughs> Damn. I mean that 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 checks out. I think my first one was Blood Angels and my last one was Blood Angels too. So that uh, well, there you go. Yeah, so, I, I don't know. I, I just I just enjoy I enjoy switching around and trying new things and looking at new problems and trying to solve tr- solve new things. I mean, like also I tend to fall in love with an army as it is and not as you know and how it plays in one particular configuration and not as that army will play every time rules change. If that makes sense. Yeah. So if I could try to just break that down, it's basically saying you love 
a specific Harlequin list, as an example, like the way Twilight Harlequins, the way you ran them at Kansas or Chicago, whichever it was, um, you love the way that army played. But you don't necessarily have an emotional connection towards all of Harlequins just for the sake of their cool. No, yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. I also happen to really like the eight-boat list. I think that's fun, fun as hell. Uh, I think I just really like factions that are fast and give me a lot of options. Fast and aggressive, I think, is probably what I like what I like the most. Yeah, very nice. So I guess most players, they'll play one to two to three factions. As they play for longer and longer, they'll collect more. But they typically play one to two factions in a season as they're serious factions that they're getting a lot of reps in, going to event after event after event. And they use the knowledge gleamed from the earlier events and the early practice games to catapult them further throughout the season. And you were like, nah, screw that. I'm going to play a different army every time, more or less. Do you think that was, like, at some point part of your identity? Was it part of you just wanted to? Do you think this actually helped your odds of winning, hurt your odds of winning? Um, I think it helps my odds of winning, uh, switching armies, if you can do it. You know, some people some people can't switch armies as much. It's Some people can, some people can't. Uh, if you're not good at switching armies, then you should stay with the ones that you know. I'm fairly quick at picking up new, like new play styles or or new armies. I'm fairly quick at it, so I can just switch, 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 switch. Sometimes, you know, like at Nova, I switched to Necrons, which was the best. And sometimes I decided I wanted to try something completely different, like at Chicago, uh, or yeah. It, so I, I switch it around. Sometimes, like I picked up Blood Angels for ATC because you know Blood Angels are awesome. Same reason I picked it up for LVO. Not like Blood Angels were the best army in the game, but they're awesome, and I wanted to play them. Um, but sometimes I picked up because they are the best. For sure. And I think it's really impressive, because you, you've kind of been known as a Blood Angel player for quite some time, but then you didn't bring them to every event because you've obviously sort of switched around. But you like your Blood Angels, and the fact that they weren't considered like the top army going into LVO or anything, and you were like, I'm going to play these anyway. I think that's super cool. Yeah, well, you know, I figured it, it had... Uh, it had Siegs on Admech vibes, and yeah, once you feel the vibes, you got to go with the vibes, Nick. I mean, that's true. Vibes are real. Same reason I ran Fate Weaver. That's right. You you were debating between Fate Weaver and Lord of Change, and then you realized you were debating between Fate Weaver and Lord of Change, and you were like, Fate Weaver. That's the end of and it turns out, you were right. That's true. That's yeah. True. <laughs> okay, so you've got... Oh, do you remember the list of armies you played this season? I just want to go through it. Um, Cherokee, I played Tau. Uh, if you, I, I played sisters to two events. I know that I played into Dallas and motor city mayhem. Um, I played blood angels to ATC. I played Tau again to WTC. Then I played, uh, I played Necrons at, at Nova. Yeah. Let me, let me see. Oh, he's pulling it up. So going back Cherokee Tau Adepticon, I played Eldar. I played Ulthway. I played like some psychic nonsense that with an avatar it was awesome then dallas opened in motor city mayhem i played sisters uh, i played knights to an rtt nearby because i wanted to try them out john was going to chaos knights i went with knights and we just made it work atc i played blood angels um i played tau to wtc i played necrons to nova i played drukari to crucible i played harlequins to chicago and I played Blood Angels to LVO. I also played Custodies to a local GT here. Yeah, that's quite an eclectic group of armies. And it, you know, there's a lot to unpack here. But one thing I find really interesting is you never switched to Tyranids. And they were p- pretty much the best army in the game for the better part of 2022. And you, you, you said, screw that. Yeah. No. Yeah, I I'm just wanted to try something new. No, fair enough, fair enough. Did you ever want to try Tyranids? Were you ever like, I need to play the best thing to try to chase that ITC, chase those wins, that kind of thing? Uh, I didn't want to play Nids. I don't know what it was. I just was not enthusiastic about Tyranids. Gotcha. That makes sense. All right. So you said some players can switch armies as often as you do, and other players maybe not as well. And I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what gives you that competitive edge, not the Warlord trait? That allows you to switch between factions so effectively. Um, honestly, not sure. It's never really been a problem for me. Like Nick, you know, I've always kind of hopped around armies. So maybe it's that I've just been doing it for a very long time, and that I'm that I'm good at going from one playstyle to another, to another, to another. 
Um, I think there's definitely truth to that, Jack. You know, I've been sparring with you for years and years and years, and be, because the two of us would spar in a little bubble, we would only play whatever factions we were playing unless we forcibly branched out and tried other stuff for the sake of actually just getting some exposure to the game. And that really made us both better players at playing a variety of different factions, which I think is critical to what we do now. But I would say, like, you and I, when we switched armies and practice games back in the day, we would never be able to play it like as if we'd been playing it all season and we we're professionals at it. We just play the best we could. And that's kind of the same results you, that I, you know, someone would expect you to replicate when you switch factions now, where it's like you pick Harlequins up for the first time or Tau up for the first time, you take it to Cherokee or Kansas City, whatever. No one's going to expect you to do poorly. You're obviously very good at this game. But to consistently first place, first place, first place, first place, it's pretty unreal. I mean, like, there's got to be something more to it. Where do you think that is? Well, I when I switch armies like that, I don't just pick a list up and go. You know, I, I get my on-the-ground training on how to play the list, like, in the first couple games. But I don't go in just not knowing the army at all. When I, like, when I played Harlequins, I grabbed the book. Well, I knew I was going to play Harlequins after Cherokee. After, not Cherokee, after Crucible. I went out onto the porch with the Harlequin book and just read it for a couple hours. Even though the Harlequin rules are only like seven pages, eight pages, you know. So first off, you know the 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 rules in like you know the how the army functions in depth. You know all the options you have access to, and then when you write the list from the ground up with a plan in mind, that means that I I still know how it's going to operate on the table before I've actually put it on the table. So there there is a lot of prep that goes into hopping armies it's not just i show up at the event with a new army and i'm like i don't know buddy i'm just going to figure it out the same as you yeah like you know, a lot I, of theory I, hammer and practice goes into it beforehand yeah a lot of theory hammer and practice goes into it before i you know i'll consult a faction specialist or something when i was planning to hop to t sons i reached out to brad townsend you know and bounced lists off him constantly for about 2 days things like that a lot of times when you pick a new faction to play at one of your one of your events, flavor of the month it might be, you don't just copy pasta a very successful list. You might i I've watched you go through the process. You you really do try to innovate your own variation. It might look just like this is Harlequins, this is Tao, but every choice you make is from the ground up and deliberate. Why don't you just copy pasta someone else's list that is super successful? I don't think you can really do that. Um I think everybody's list is kind of unique to them. It's a little a little I don't think, flair. Yeah, you you need to have a little flair, or you need to be in the design process of the list to really understand how the list functions. You know, it's net listing has all has never really worked out. Just to understand how somebody's list like really functions, you need to either be in the design process, or you need to like talk to that person for a while about it. Yeah, even even when I've like like as an example, I've copy pasta to Eric Lathiris's GSC list for our streams. So I could just like this list is successful. Let's figure out how to use it. And I have never at any point felt like I knew what I was doing with that list to the degree that even close to what Eric does. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's a lot of little combos. There's a lot of because they've spent a lot of time thinking about that list. And as part of that, they have answers to problems. It just might not be obvious. It usually isn't. It's usually like this unit in here can do this thing nor- normally, but we'll do this thing in this matchup. And and knowing all of that, it you list taking a list and going to an event, unless it's like a really, really well-known list, or it's just like, like even the custodies list, Nick. Like the custodies list that we took to WTC, right? The one with six dreadnoughts, three Caladius. Like it's as it's as basic bare bones as you can get. It looks like monkey brain madness. Right. But even there, you still have to know how the list is supposed to function because it has a game plan. And if you don't play that game plan right, you're going to lose with it. I'll even say the game plan to that list specifically is really obvious, at least on paper, as a facade. When there was a time where I almost had to fill in it from coach to player of a WTC and I was going to pilot six dreadnoughts triple Cladius. We were like, this is the easiest of the all the armies to learn in like a week. And it go play nine models. And, you know, for someone at our caliber, Jacker, I don't think that should be too much of a challenge, but it really was. Like, it didn't match my play style at all. I didn't know the nuances to Custodies at all. I've never really played the faction. And those differences at, at the competitive level that we play at for the WTC, that was getting me killed left, right, and center. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't play every army. I can't play every army. Slow armies like uh, Death Guard, 
I suspect Votan, if I ever were to like hop on, I'd need to try and do something fast and weird um, in order to try and make it mesh with how I play the game. But slow armies, like Iron Hand shooting, gun lines, things like that, they don't really mesh with how my brain works. So I think I love that you put that out there because everyone's got their own play style, whether they know it or not. I know you and I play the game pretty oppositely. I love janky, not obvious hidden lines of play and creative thinking with 40K. And not to say that you don't like that stuff, but you really just kind of put pressure on somebody and, and just win the game from a board state perspective. How do you, how does someone find their play style? How did you find yours? Uh, I found mine by hopping armies a bunch and finding which armies I liked to play, which armies worked for me and which armies didn't. Like I kind of always thought I'd like the, the grindy, like durable play style. And then I played death guard a bunch and just was like, what am I doing right now? What is going on? Um, so if you, if what you're playing a lot matches one play style, then you probably, that might be your play style. Yeah. And I think also play styles can evolve and change over time. I know what I did back in the day with like Rain Knights in fifth edition is very different to how I play 40k now. Yeah. Out of all the armies you played this year, Jack, which do you think was the strongest at the time? And which do you think is your most favorite? Man, I, uh, I still really like my my uh scent star from like way back in the day oh man uh-huh. <laughs> I, I meant this year but okay scent star from from sixth edition that's the one it was just it was just like a like a well-oiled machine and it had all these little units that ran around doing stuff and also occasionally i'd play into nick and uh psy shock missile or whatever they were called psy strike missile yeah something like that yeah your uh all your cycles off the table it was great it was the but worst. but you meant this season um this season, my favorite list was probably, probably Blood Angels. I think my best list this season was the Tau, but they got nerfed like four times. Yeah. <laughs> they deserved it. But I think my favorite list was was probably the one that I went into LVO with. Just a very, very simple list with, you know, three units of this, three units of that, three units of this, and then characters. So let's talk about LVO now. That's a nice segue. I don't think anybody besides like the internal crew who maybe knew your knew your brains, was going to pick peg you for a Blood Angel player at LVO. What was that decision process like? Uh, the decision process was a series of phone calls with uh, Anthony Vanella, honestly. Basically, I was set going in. I was going to play an eight-boat, eight-star you know, star weaver Harlequin list, Twilight Harlequins. It was very good, one of the best lists in the game, and... I was gonna, I was gonna play it. I'd written a list. I, you know, Quentin and I had uh, shared it back and forth, and he ended up taking it to to LVO, and I was gonna take it as well. And then I just hopped on a phone call with Anthony, and he was just like, "Hey, have you have you considered taking Blood Angels?" And I was like, "Honestly, no." And then he he laid out a few reasons why I might. Like, boy, it's really good into T Suns, Thousand Suns, and you know it's really not. Harlequins, and I was like, "Whew, you got yourself a point right there." Um, th- things like that. Just, just he he gave me reasons why I could play Blood Angels, and if you give me reasons why I can, I just will. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it, you don't have to sell someone who wants to be sold. I get that. Yeah. Um, usually, going through your pre-event, like leading into list submission process, you are you are a flying, bouncing like a crazy person. I mean, you. I've watched you switch armies five times in a matter of three days before. And you were not like that at all this time. You know, you you really, you had T-Suns and Harlequins as your two options leading into like the last weekend before list submission. And like you said, you called Anthony and all of a sudden you're a Blood Angel player. I guess, did you find, did, did it like fit or like were you unhappy with your other options? What really led you to um, this decision? Well, I told him I would put Blood Angels on the table and then I did. And then I, uh, I mean, not to put too much emphasis on, on your record during practice weekend, cause that's not the point, but I didn't lose a game with blood angels. And I was like, well, if I can do that here, right. Then I can probably do that in LVO. And what am I worried about? I'm not going to lie. Leading into my own personal LVO list design and planning, I was talking to John a lot about, um, what, what problems my demon army could face or what problems my other army could face. And both of us were like going through all the different factions in the game, talking about my solutions and my options and whatever. And then we got to Blood Angels, and we were like, "Man, Blood Angels is going to be like a super tough match for me." But well, you didn't. You didn't hit Blood Angels. I almost did, but I didn't make it far. You hit demons. Yeah, yeah, it was very close. But 
I I don't know if if I can do well with Bloodlines. There's a certain amount at LVO, especially LVO. I'm not sure why. It's a very 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 random event. Anything can happen. Every army is represented by a decent player at least. So you can run into anything, literally anything. And there are some metagames where you know what the best list is and everyone's going to be bringing it or they're going to be trying to counter it. And that's a very solved meta. And then there's some metas like like the end of Nephilim where you can kind of play a lot of different armies. You can play like 10, 15 different armies and do well with it. And so during that kind of metagame, if you try to solve for, I hear this guy's on this this army and now what if this guy's on this army? What if I play this guy? You're going to drive yourself absolutely insane. Like, you're going to drive yourself up a wall. I will say LVO, uh, more so than pretty much every other tournament I've ever played in, will make you second-guess yourself as a player, make you second-guess your list, make you... It gives you a lot of time to get in your own head with it, especially because you know everyone who is seriously competing that season is going to be there. And there's so much variableness to 40K, where if you play at a certain level, you really want to have a, a finite, set-in-tune plan, like, this is how I'm going to win that game, going into it. And then... The fact that you just realistically can't do that for every army, every player out there can drive you absolutely mad. It's how we ended up at Yellow White Scars. But yeah. um, I think this was one of the most healthy years, at least the Art of War team experience in that. John was like, I'm just going to play my Tyrants. I was like, I'm playing my Demons. And you really found your niche with the Blood Angels. And it was awesome. Exactly. No, I mean, it's, it's kind of a case of you can't control everything um, at this kind of an event. So just take an army that you like and are good with and... And you get the pairings and you get the tables that you get and you just try and work for the best you can from there. Because you you can try to control, you can try to impose your will on, you know, I'll make sure every matchup is favored and I'll make sure I can play every matchup on every table that we get paired into. But that's just not how life works. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. And there's a third fickle party here called Fate. Yeah, especially at LVO where all the tables are different. Um, what yeah. that might mean, like, is is if I play into Tau and I play, which I when I played into Tau, I played them on the sisters' train, and when I played into Tau, that was fine. But if I played them on an industrial or field base or something like that, I probably it would have been a much, much, much harder game. So you know, if you try to control the variables in in that, it's going to be impossible. Like, write me a list that consistently beats Tau on industrial terrain, but also consistently beats you know blood angels on sisters terrain it doesn't exist for real and a lot of play time people get really frustrated by that because it's like you can't plan for everything but you want to plan for everything and you know they feel like their run might be cut short because of a poor table pairing how do you cope with that as a competitive player um usually i cope by going into what's called a list spiral there we go yeah yeah it's it's where like right before list submission i'm like ah what am i doing ah that's the uh, unhealthy way to, to handle it, in case anyone was wondering. Yeah, we've all, I we've think all a been better way is not great. No, because there's a you definitely want to put thought into what you take to an event and how you write your list and what you know if you're picking between armies, what army you take. That's for sure. You, you, I could sit up here and be like, yeah, don't think about that. That would be a lie. You want to think about it, but you don't want the thoughts to like circle back on themselves and turn into an endless cycle of like, I have no answers here. And if that happens, you probably just want to pick something and just go with it. Something that you know, something that you know is like decent and just go. So I'm going to add another layer of complexity to this. I think there are certain armies which um, are very tactically, strategically flexible and they can adjust their strategy to their opponent and their board and play a different game of 40k tailored to their specific situation better than others. Some armies are like blunt instruments and just hit them with your hammer until they die. And the armies that are more diverse in how they can play the game and approach the game, I find typically do better in these, I'll say, more random potentiality scenarios like LVO, where you're like the table, there's a thousand people, all those are variables that you can't control. And something like in the game's workshop format, having a specific list that does the specific thing really, really formulaically might do you a little bit better. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's that's probably correct. Um, the Blood Angel list I played, it seems very simple. I've seen a YouTube video on a channel I will not name uh, where they broke down my list and they just say it has one game plan. It moves to the center. It takes your opponent's best hit, and then you're like, not enough, and you hit them. And that is pretty far from how Blood Angels actually play. I love reading the, the internet's like, this is how this works. And it's like, well, let's let's get actual Jack Robster on the Art of War podcast to figure out how this actually works. So yeah. another excellent yeah. segue, Jack. Why don't you lay down what your list was? Absolutely. So 
Uh, starting it off, we got the king himself. We got Dante. He's the warlord, no trait, just giving me that extra CP. I've got a sanguinary priest with teeth of Terra and um, soul warden. Soul warden not actually as good as I thought. Like it didn't come up very much, but hey, could have. Um, and then teeth of Terra makes him an absolute menace. And then I've got Lamartes, who is was a surprise breakout star of the weekend. He was insane, super good. He only applies to he's a chaplain that only applies to Death Company, but he is himself a massive beat stick when he casts Monster Strength on himself. Then I've got three units of infiltrators, which was the secret tech. It would they turned out to be amazing in like most matchups. Um, then I've got three units of seven sanguinary guard with a mix of swords and axes in there. Then I took three units of Death Company. Two of them had double thunder. Two of them had double power fist, triple power sword, and and inferno pistols. All five had inferno pistols. And then the the last unit had four thunder hammers. So pretty simple on the outlook, right? Triple Sangard, triple Death Company, variety of smashy blood angel characters, a little bit of tech with the triple infiltrator. But what I find really interesting is that you you said your army doesn't just play like a ball that runs to the center behind the walls and just tables everybody. So when you when you look at it, that's certainly what it looks like it does. How do you actually pilot it so that it doesn't do it? Absolutely. So there's three play styles that the list would have. Um, the first play style is you sit back and win primary and do nothing, right? literally nothing. This is what happened in my game against TJ, was I sat back on two objectives, and he sat back on one, and I had enough threat behind a wall that if he stepped out, I would hit him. Um, so that is the first plan. The first plan is sit and do literally absolutely nothing because you're making them do the first move. I put the work in my list design process in order to have <clears throat> a play style where in order to have an option and to have points where I can sit back and not do anything. The second play style is what if they push up to an objective to give me eights instead of twelves? Well, then I send a little missile onto the objective, kill, kill them off of it, take it. That's my shock tactics. That's my fear of the lost. So now, if you want to avoid giving me primary, you're giving me secondary. So it's that's the pincer, right? So against TJ, TJ is the perfect example because I put him in the lock really early. Um, if he contested my primary, he gave me my secondaries. And if he contest, and if he avoided my secondaries by staying away from all the objectives, if he if he avoided giving my death company any kills, then I got twelves on primary. He got fours, and it also kept his secondaries fairly low. And I took banners so I could just sit there and get them all. So let me, let me just unpack yeah, this a little bit. You basically are sitting on your side of the board with Sanguinary Guard, Death Company, and characters. And that's not exactly something that someone's eager to walk up to and say hello. So they're gonna, their options are stay away or like send little missiles in to contest your objectives and play a 40k game like that. But if they stay away, obviously you're on the objectives, they're going to lose primary. And if they're playing like the send one unit in a turn kind of game where they send a missile in to contest your objective, you bang Fury the Lost Points and Shock Tactics right off of that. But what's stopping Absolutely. someone from just blowing you up? Like TG was playing Thousand Suns in your example. So they got tons of shots, tons of mind bullets, and like you're not that tough to kill, right? So like, can't you just die? Absolutely can. That is where the three squads of infiltrators came in. And at first I thought I was kind of trolling with that. Like I thought, wow, that's too many infiltrators. One does not need that many infiltrators. Um, and then there were other options as to things I could take. I actually think the infiltrators were in amazing. And I, I think people are going to be running infiltrators in the future for as sure. Demon player. This is really breaking my heart, but I'll break it down for <laughs> Sorry. Me. So infiltrators have a, have a 12 inch bubble of, uh, you can't deep strike. You can't teleport. You can't do, do anything nearby. Um, and this, this helps a lot because it means that their, uh, their radius of you can't deep strike near me is um 144 inches instead of it's it's not quite it's you know but if you were to look at it as a square i don't know i'm not doing calculator math with pi right now but it's about 50 to 60 percent bigger than a than a nine inch circle yeah it, um, it is it it's is a, a lot, lot bigger that's a lot matters a lot but where it really comes into play and that that is good enough by itself but where it really comes into play is when your opponent has a rule that gets around the nine inch because nothing gets around the 12 inch off the infiltrators. So when your opponent's a demon player and they want to come in five inches away from you, six inches away from you, no, you don't come in 12, please. No, no charges declared. Um, if your opponent is GSC and can come in six inches away from you, three inches away from you, no, you don't. You come in 12. And what this does, because I had three units, not just one. One is annoying enough. I had three. 
And what this meant was I could deploy one, I would set up my terrain in such a way where I could hide my whole army without being seen. Because what happens a lot against Tau, if they have reserves, or uh, against Thousand Suns, because they can teleport and have flamers teleporting down and whatnot, uh, is that you have to expose resources to prevent them from teleporting. And then they don't have to use their resources to teleport. They just pick up your, your resources. I'm Blood Angels. I don't have cheap resources. But what I can do is set up my, my buildings in such a way where I can put my infiltrators 12 inches from the corner and 12 inches from the cent, like so that they zone out my entire backfield. So two units can zone out my entire backfield, no teleporting, no deep striking, no nothing. You have to, if you want to get to them, you have to come through 21 Sangard, 15 Death Company, four characters. You just have to. And that was huge. Then, then the third unit would be up forward, like behind a rune up forward. So there's just no teleporting, no getting angles. It, it basically tells your opponent, hey, all that jank you were trying to do, none of that, please. And what that means is that they have to play a very honest game of 40K with me. If a Thousand Suns player, if a Gene Circle player wants to play the game, they have to walk up to me physically. And that is a very scary thing to do to Blood Angels. Yeah, you Whereas, basically turned it into a fair fight where a lot of armies were trying to use whatever creative tactics they have to engage your army on their terms. You're saying, no, you have to walk into my army and move 14 jump packs that kill you. Exactly. And it's very difficult to dislodge two units of infiltrators in a backfield when my, like just two units of Marines in a backfield, let alone transhuman. Um, if you can't deep strike, you can't teleport. If it's just two units in my backfield and that's enough to screen it all out, life gets very hard for armies that want to deep strike, right? I don't need to expose anything. I don't need to leave any resources back. It's amazing. In a and, way, you, you, it's hard to cut you off, but you, I feel like you're, what you're describing is you save points by spending points premium on infiltrators over like incursors or intercessors because when, functionally in a game of 40k, you're, you have some stuff in your back and then... The rest of your armies, a bunch of armies, ready to go bash someone's face in. So you have, let's call it 1,670 points, or 1,630 points of punchy stuff, and then 360 points of infiltrators. One person could say, like, we've put so many points in backfield. But what happens in 40k is when you have someone who's actually threatening your backfield with deep strikes and janky plays, you end up leaving characters back there. You end up leaving real squads of Sangard back there just to keep your backfield objective holders safe anyway. So the fact that they are self-sufficient at keeping themselves safe is really good. Yeah, it was so nice, honestly. Just not having to worry about deep strikers, not having to worry about teleports, none of that. A lot of armies have a way to teleport a unit. I played against, um, you know, Veil of Darkness. I played against deep strikers. Demons basically have to put their whole army on the board because you're just not going to let them deep strike anywhere relevant. It's, it, it's a big, it, it frees up a lot of, my thought process, I don't have to worry about my janky, the janky stuff my opponent does. As you said, it makes them play a fair game. And if you play a fair game with Blood Angels, so it forces them into a fair game where then they get caught in the lock. And the lock is you either let me score my secondary or you let me score my primary. And there's no way around it other than to try and push into me. And that's when play style number three happens. There's three play styles. One is you sit back and do nothing. The second one is you missile out and take objectives to get your points. And the third one is very important. It is the, you know, it's send it. It is Let's go. Bash. It, it's smash. Yeah, it's, it is hit your opponent with everything as hard as possible. So basically and, you try to get them in this points sad place where they, they can sit back and lose to you because you are more primary. They can come forward and contest your prime, but then you're giving them secondaries. And if they just try to get through both your primary and your secondary debacle by functionally killing everything, then they're walking into charge range of a blood angel army. You say, let's go. Yes, exactly. The let's go emote like, wow. Yeah. Um, that's basically how it works. I mean, when I was talking to Anthony, he was the one who told me to try out the triple death company, Lamarty's build. And he just said, people, uh, let me, let me get my best Anthony impression. Hey, broadly speaking, people can't just trade with you, right? If they get in a trade war with you, they just lose. I think that's a pretty decent one. Yeah, a little bit um, more uh, Anthony in there than usual. I like it. Yeah, yeah. He likes to say broadly speaking a lot. He does. He uh, does. But yeah, broadly speaking, if they get into a trade war with you, you're going to win. 
the game because you're just scoring so many points so quickly. And if they sit back, you're scoring all your primary and you're taking banners. And then if they push you, guess what? They get they get smacked in the face. And that happened multiple times where I would just see a bit of an opening and I'd be like, all right, every unit is going to jump you now. So when I'm thinking very fast. about like how this army plays on the table, and especially with the description that you've just given it, I'm now thinking of like what theoretical stuff you could do to to play against it. And one thing I'm thinking of is what if they have like good mobile shooting so they can just get around your ruins to blow up your sanguinary guard or stuff like that. And the other one I'm thinking of is of what happens if you like play someone who is perfectly capable of bashing your face in also and challenges you on that front. So this is like Fabius Pyle. I know you played Sean's Orcs in the final game, so very excited to hear about that one a little bit. But two totally opposite approaches to fighting you, both with the same strategy of beating you in a fist fight or a gunfight. Tao, for example, would try to move forward and shoot you at angles, and Fabius Pyle or Orcs might just try to run you over at your own game. Both yeah, with the goal of just beating you on on table physical assets models so that the points kind of fall into place. How do you approach those two scenarios? Yeah, absolutely. Those are the two scenarios I I was the most worried about. Uh, I think those were the two scenarios that that could go the worst. Because if if you if they do fall into my game plan, I'm I'm going to win, very likely. But it's it's for people who try to undo the game plan. So yeah, if people like fast shooting, like like uh, Tau, that would be really rough for me. Uh, I knew that going in, and I knew <laughs> the problem with LVO is is if I play Tau on field base or industrial or old champs or Necron table or something, it's it's an insanely hard game. Um, whereas if I play them on sisters, which as I said is what happened, it's way way easier because they can't see anything. Uh, I was just kind of accepting that risk, honestly. And I was hoping that if I played a Tau player on a bad table, they wouldn't be, it would be like hopefully early and they wouldn't be as, as practiced with it. Um, there, it's mostly about conserving resources as much as physically possible while still scoring your points. And you're probably going to get tabled by the end of the game and you need to accept that and know that. And you're going, you just need to try to rack up the scoreboard while conserving as many resources as possible in a way that's kind of what happened in my game into the Mephrit Necrons um, was that I, I got tabled by the end of the game. Basically I had like five models left and then three characters, two characters, three characters. I think it doesn't matter. The point is I, he, he had lost like 300 points of his army, but the scoreboard for blood angels is really good. So at least if someone has a board edge advantage over you, then you probably have a secondary advantage. Tyranids were another problem because they can they can try and do the outmuscling, but I have a secondary advantage over them. I have a secondary advantage over Tau. That's got to be my in to try to win the game. As far as people who try to just rumble in the center better than me, um, as far as that goes, I think Blood Angels into Fabius Bile is actually okay because their stat lines aren't actually the best into me, and I'm much, much faster. So I can, while they'll always fight on death, I could, I mean, now it's a four plus, so that matchup gets a lot, a lot better. It, in, at LVO, they would tend to bounce. They would fight on death, but I would pick every fight. So I would try and leverage that to, to get a win. Um, like Sangard going into Possessed, for example, Possessed are very scary, but Sangard at minus one to hit and, you know, functionally minus one AP were, weren't, weren't that scary. And now they only fight on a four plus. So that that helps a lot too. It really lowers the amount of attacks coming back into you. Um, you know, just trying to say I will fight on death and jamming your army forward generally won't work against good players because they'll pick all the fights that they want, and then when they happen, they'll all be in their favor. Yeah. Um, Makes but against orcs, you just gotta out. You just gotta try and outplay them on the board. Like you're a combat army, they're a combat army. They have good secondaries. You have good secondaries. So you just gotta go in and play a good game of 40k, and that's it. It sounds so simple when you say it like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you, they're basically they're very they're very similar armies. Blood like Angels can hide. Yeah, yeah, they they are very similar um, in that orcs have good secondaries and are very aggressive. So you just have to play better than your opponent. That's that's really all there is. Do you think part of that is, of course, your 40k fundamentals, which is what we teach in the war room and all that? But I think part of that could also be Jack that you have 
faction hopped through almost every army in the game, and not just in events, but even like practice games in our stream house, just playing a variety of armies for our, our war streams. That gives you some at least foundational knowledge into every army and how they really work. So do you, especially as a combat army, do you leverage your knowledge of your opponent's faction to create more favorable scenarios than someone who may be going in like works punching combat? That's like the rudimentary understanding of them. Yeah, absolutely. There, there are some aspects of an army that you don't really get unless you play with them and you've experienced the loss conditions. For example, uh, just about Blood Angels, right? Like I was just playing Blood Angels. You would never think that trapping Blood Angels in combat is a real plan. But it really can be. Base gap it's something, yeah, it's something I as the Blood Angel player have to be very concerned with. It sounds super weird. That's where they want to be, right? Well, let me let me lay it out for you. Blood Angels have no fallback in charge. And when they're not in a first round of a combat, right? They haven't been charged, they haven't heroic, they haven't charged themselves. They're minus two attacks because they're not uh in Savage Echoes and they're not in Shock Assault, and they're not plus one to wound. And you can't fall back in charge. So if if you hit a blood angel unit and it hits you back and then you survive that unit isn't doing anything on the next turn it has to fall back or it has to just sit there are so there, are there really any units that survive that though getting hit by yeah, a there are. unit absolutely are um some orc units can totally do it uh, it happened in my game against Sean he made a unit of 3 sanguinary guards something that would have been a big threat and cleared a decent size of the field he made it fall back and not do anything because a big squad of knobs charged in, fought one thing, fought the fought the sanguinary guard, chipped it down, but there weren't enough attacks back, especially early on when I wasn't in assault doctrine. Um, especially if you can pile and consolidate into blood angels where they don't have that plus one to wound, they don't have those plus two attacks. All of a sudden, three attacks sanguinary guard without plus one to wound are a lot less scary. So that's the sort of thing you get to learn as you play with every kind of army is there are some things that you might not expect that would be uh, loss conditions, like trapping blood angels in combat. It can happen. You know, you can pile and consolidate and suddenly tag my army with a bloodthirster that doesn't that's phase capped. And I'm like, oh, no, I think in a in a stream game, you you tagged Karandras into two units of Sangard. It was annoying. It <laughs> he was like at three wounds by the end of that phase. <laughs> For sure. Um, now, I, I love that. That basically you're using your knowledge of all the different armies to not only avoid your loss conditions, like you don't want to get trapped by Karandras again or a face cap blood there again, but you know, you know where the orc army might struggle and fall apart. You know where the Harlequin army might struggle and fall apart. I, and a great example is your game against Mike Porter for the ITC championships, where it's basically a lot of Harlequin players view that game as really cagey, janky. You're going to try to steal points. I'm going to try to steal points. We'll see who wins. And you're like, no, I'm not playing that game with you. And you just ran straight at them because you knew through God knows how many reps with both Harlequins and Blood Angels that in a straight fist fight, Harlequins will statistically lose like 10 out of 10 times. Yeah. Well, it, crucially, you can't let your opponent get the first hit. And this is kind of how it works in 40K in general. If you just jam the center and let your opponent hit you first, you're almost always going to lose. The damage output right now is very high. So you have to get the first hit on your opponent. Even against, you know, even against Harlequins. If I just jammed my army in the center against uh, Mike, which this, this game is on stream, so people can check it out. If I just jammed my army in the center against Mike, I would have gotten picked away. He would have gotten to do his cool stuff, or he would have just shot me with every single unit in his army, and that would have hurt. Instead, I played the janky trading game with him until I got him in a position where he had to start pushing up to try to get his secondaries, and that's when I charged every boat on the board. And then what he had left couldn't hit me back hard enough, and I think that's critical. Like I went in turn three. I did not go in turn one because I knew that you know, if I go in turn one, if I go try and go to him, it's going to, it's going to be rough, and that's kind of how it is in 40K in general. But if you can get them to come to you and then you hit them, great success. Yeah, makes perfect sense to me. So 
last thing I want to cover in this part one of the show is basically uh, a rough idea of where you think you're going to head in the Arcs of Omen season. And then in part two, where we're going to pick up this conversation for all of our Patreon subscribers, which you can join on AOW40K.com. That's when we're going to really get into how Blood Angels look in the new meta and then what the new meta looks like altogether. And, and Jack, where are you thinking of you're heading yourself personally? Um, so in terms of where I'm thinking of heading myself right now, I don't know, but I want it to be something janky. Uh, I really liked the play style of an aggressive army with good secondaries. So that's probably something I want to experiment with as well. Right now, I'm kind of enamored with a uh, an elf hero hammer list that's just like every good character from Eldar and Harlequins all jammed together, maybe maybe plus an avatar. I don't know. That sounds awesome, though. Um, that, that sounds really cool. But then, yeah, I think it's going to be some kind of aggressive army with good secondaries, whether that's Ravenwing, whether that's... Um, I mean, even GSC kind of is, you know, because you come in, you try and hit your opponent really, really hard, and then you have good secondary, so your opponent can't just can't make up the gap. Uh, something like that, I think, would be very interesting to me going forward, but I'm not 100% sure because my brain has been fried by LVO, and currently it's recovering. I don't know about you, Nick. Yeah, totally understandable. And you know what? I think we can leave it off there. I got one more question for you before we sign off on this episode, Jack, though. If you could give all the aspiring Warhammer players that are listening to this podcast, hoping to get better and hopefully glean some information from you, what would your piece of advice be? Um, try to enjoy the game, honestly. If you find yourself in a position where you're not enjoying the game because you're not where you think you should be, you probably, because you're not enjoying the game, will not be getting better. Um, you will not be approaching the game in a constructive way, and you will not be... Um, just getting the reps you need, getting mindset is a big, is a big deal. If you find yourself approaching the game in an unhealthy way, taking a break might be the best thing you can do. Come back to it when you feel the call, like a couple, you know, maybe just a month later, a couple weeks later or whatever, come back to it and enjoying 40 K is very important. So if you're playing an army, you don't enjoy, you probably won't be, won't do well with it. Uh, but if you're playing an army that you do enjoy, you'll do better than you would have otherwise. So if you feel the call to meta hop and or to just hop armies and you you feel excited about the next army you're going to, absolutely go for it. That's what happens with me. I get excited about an army, I get really animated about it, and then I go with then I take the army. But if you're not feeling it, don't do it. Do something you enjoy. Because that'll always do better, even if that army is worse than a worse army you don't a better army you don't like. I really could not agree more. Jack, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, we got a whole another part two of this conversation where we're going to map out the Arcs of Omen meta. Jack's going to spill the beans on some of these secret ideas he's been uh, working on and what he wants to play and how we think the new Arcs of Omen meta is going to shape out. So if you're excited about the future of 40K and how we're breaking it down, stay tuned. Come join us, AOW40K.com. Your support literally means the world to us. It allows us to keep producing the show. As I said here, we are on episode number 174 of this podcast. We could not do it without all your support. So thank you so much, everybody. We'll catch you in part two. Bye-bye. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com. <laughs>